0: Welcome to By The Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Poldoyan. So to me, one of the most rewarding parts of working in the hospitality industry is collaborating with a really diverse group of people. I mean, over the past, like, 30-odd episodes that you've all been listening to, I'm sure with bated breath. Um, we've talked to professional musicians, we've talked to law school dropouts, we've talked to artists, we've talked to PhD academics. All of these people found their way to food and beverage at one point or another. And I think part of that has to do with like the interdisciplinary nature of wine, right? Like, Especially in the wine industry, you need to have a little bit of an understanding of geology, climatology, anthropology like all of that fits into being successful selling talking thinking about wine right and today's guest is one of those polymathic types he studied acting before going to film school to become a director before focusing full-time on wine first in new york city and then in the caribbean on an island called anguilla where he simultaneously ran the wine program for a high-end resort while operating a panini shop. His name is Christian Varas, and he's a first-generation Chilean-American who grew up in Queens, and then he learned about wine by working part-time as a TA for Kevin Zarelli at his legendary restaurant, Windows on the World, located in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. That's a place that I really only know about through the prism of the wine book that was like given to me when I first started in the wine industry, where they were like, read this and you'll learn about wine. Um, So it's really cool to hear Christian kind of talk about his time working under this like legend in the industry. We'll start with that part of the conversation. Here's Christian.
1: And whatnot, I was probably 22, 23. And then I continued to do it for the Windows on the World wine classes. It was so fun
0: for someone that like didn't experience that beyond like a book that I was told I needed to read like why why is this place so revered is yeah. it simply because of its location because it was in the world trade center like how much of it is just because of that like association with
1: WTC it's a good question the the main the main thing for me was the way they designed it um you can go up to the windows and almost stand on the edge uh and back then If you had ever been in a skyscraper before you can get you know kind of peek over a window go to the empire state building and go to the top level and and peer like through a fence uh this felt like you were floating above the city so i i always enjoyed you know when nobody was around running into and there are different rooms on that 106th floor as well that were designed for different reasons there was one that had all these broken mirrors and it was a tiny room it wasn't any bigger than like a, a changing room um like a changing stall, actually, like where you you change in a department store. Yeah. And the mirrors all face different directions, but you stood in there and looked at it, you could see all of, like towards uh, Statue of Liberty, you could see all those, the angles in the direction of Statue of Liberty. It was just an amazing room. Um, So there was a lot of mystique to it, but I think the main thing about the wine thing, and that's where the wine class was kind of born from, was Kevin's rally having brought the best wine program that had been in New York up until then, which was at the Crabtree or whatever it was, it was actually out of the city. Bringing that sensibility and that understanding of international wine, um, European wine, to Manhattan, uh, and then having having this space where people late night could go over and order a great bottle of wine and have this amazing view. And a lot of folks don't know this, but he was getting set to open in November the most amazing wine cellar in the world, which was, was going to circle the entire hundred seventh floor around the elevators on both sides, um, and it was behind a curtain, and it was against the walls, the inner wall, so it was actually a full circle of wine um, and I actually had a chance to go behind the curtain um, that October, and it was a little bit behind uh, construction, but it was supposed to open November uh two thousand one really and uh, and this was the lifelong uh work. Basically, of Kevin's Rally being put into one cellar. If you ever listen to um, his podcast on what, what's the one I'm thinking of uh, with Le- Levy Dalton?
0: Oh, I'll drink to that. I'll drink to that. With Never heard it. Never heard of him. <laughs> You've well, heard The of. only wine <laughs> podcast that matters is by the glass. No, it's, listen, you're listen right.
1: You're right. I don't want to bring up another one, a, a competitor. But his no, Kevin's Rally interview. Love here. It's peace and love here, baby. Yeah, his Kevin's Rally is, is very good because he's able to, he goes back to when Kevin's Rally was like a teenager. And that guy's got more stories, interesting stories before the age of 30 than most people have in a lifetime. Yeah. And so to work for him to watch how he did that class, and that class was upwards of 120 people. A lot of them would be like young professionals that work for Goldman Sachs and um, who were actually tasked with taking the class because early on as juniors, they would have to take out business people and, yeah. and you know, spend on the account and they need to know their way around wine. They couldn't look hmm. like a dope in front of some businessman coming in from Germany. Who knows I taught I'm a going.
0: class like that to a bunch of high wealth clients at JP Morgan. It was like how to order wine with confidence. Okay, awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's something that like, regardless of what industry you're in, like you could have a top tier MBA, you could work for some blue chip financial group. Like you need to know how to order wine and you yeah. don't want to look like a bozo. No one likes looking like a bozo.
1: You do, you have to have some worldly uh, uh, knowledge in order to, to be viable, moving up the ladder. And for this, this was, this was juniors, which was fun because it was people around the same age as me. Um, so in their early 20s, and they would come in. And because I guess uh, Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan didn't want to pay for the class, they would make them pourers. And as long as you were a pourer, you didn't pay for the class, your book, anything, you got to try all the wines Kevin Jolly would pour. But you had to pour during the class. And there's mm. repours that happen in the middle of the class. So it was fun to watch a lot of these. People who probably ended up being billionaires, who knows, um, having a tough time pouring exactly the amount that he asked. He would ask us to cover 17 people, 16 people per bottle. 17 if you gyp somebody. If you want maybe somebody, like one and a half
0: ounces, thereabouts. it's
1: pretty much right around there. It's a little bit under, but if you believe me, if you do the whole ounce and a half, and you yeah, can't you're cover, yeah, you're fucked by
0: person 16.
1: That's yeah. right, and Kevin's rally would make you know it. And so I got after the first run I did with him, one class. I got to be the lead poor. So I got to boss those young youngsters around. That's great. Who had a lot more money than I did even at that point. But they were all they all listened and they were all very because he ran a tight ship. And if he brought in seven bottles of Pichon Lalonde that were donated by somebody up at Cornell, he had to make sure he covered those hundred and twenty people or hundred and forty people with those seven bottles. Um, and so it was very intense. What and was
0: I, like Casey's approach to like actually teaching was it like 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 what was this dynamic like what was his presence
1: have you seen um uh what's the movie there where where the the skies start falling frogs start falling out of the skies you know what's what i'm talking about uh think, with
0: a chance of meatballs no it's
1: a P, no. it's a p.t anderson movie oh i know exactly what
0: it's you're tom cruise about. is it? yeah um magnolia
1: magnolia okay yeah. well tom cruise in the movie if you remember when he has like the headset on and he's like a motivational oh, that, speaker yeah and like he's got the room's attention like you would, Kevin's Rally's like that dude except he doesn't do all the except physical more stuff No 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 he's he's more buttoned up right yeah, but he's yeah. very I can tell you from watching him had done done the class dozens of times it's never exactly the same but it's always exactly the same if that makes sense his structure is so on point i think if you that you could you could time a song to his class meaning He's gonna hit the high points at the same time every time, even though it might be different new material. But his knowledge uh of how to keep a room engaged, I mean his ability, uh, is is up there. Like yeah. if like if he would ever jumped and started doing, for example, like Ted Talks just for fun for other people, um, and he had enough passion about what he was talking about, he uh he could definitely help sell some product or really? make a movement happen. He's in, in terms of people getting behind something or an idea. And, uh, and yeah, I've never seen him do the class ever since, right? Uh, we had the ASA class on the Monday, and then I was doing um, a, a set class on Tuesday, and Tuesday is when it happened, so I never got up there. But I remember getting yelled at the day before because we couldn't stretch two bottles in the Alsace um, Loire Valley class. Hmm. And so he ended up bitching us all out and I was one of the only ones that had, it was my third time doing the class as a TA. And I got bitched out, well, mo- more than anybody, because he said I should have known we should have never opened that second bottle. But the upside of that is I was able to take one of the bottles, like, you know, fuck it. Just take them. They're all going to go bad anyway. And so as, a, as punishment, he let us all take one bottle, <laughs> which was kind of like to, to remind us, hey, what you did wrong. So the bottle had been pulled up, but not fully out. So I just shoved the bottle back in, and I gave it to a buddy as a birthday gift whose birthday is September 11th. And that night, we, we ate at Danielle. My first and only time eating at, eating at Danielle. And he was a chef. His name's Ron. And we worked at a so restaurant September called 10th. On September 10th. On September 10th, Monday night, we yep. went to dinner at Danielle. After a crazy rainy day, my class was in the daytime. I went to a tasting at the Whitney Museum. So KZ chews you out yeah. on the 10th. Something yeah. Like
0: you fucked up with pouring yeah. this all-sauce wine. Mm-hmm. You're going to take it home with you. You're going to drink the whole thing mm-hmm. and think about what you did. Yeah. And you're like, I'm going to go to this restaurant yeah. with my buddy, pop this bottle for yeah. his birthday, yeah. Monday night, living it up. We're doing it. Yeah.
1: I didn't pop it though. I stuck the cork back in. I gave it to him as a gift. I said, look, I'm not going to tell you the circumstances behind how I got this bottle, but it's a great bottle. It was a bottle of Hearst uh, Pinot Gris, and it was labeled Tokai Pinot Gris back then. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, I can't remember the vineyard site, but it was a Grand Cru vineyard Alsatian wine and Ronnie drank that wine with me I think maybe f- ten years later. It was fair. It was probably ten years later. It was it was enough time to wait, but it was like 2011 2010 hmm. excellent it was yeah. a perfect shape Yeah, which is one of the good things about the long corks and Alsace is I I never got all the way through the cork when I pulled up the cork But we just pushed it back in and you might ask yourself. Why wouldn't we uh, just use the same wine in the next? the next day, because he was doing the same class the next day in the evening uh, is because a lot of the corks were short and we had pierced through and he was just like, it's not going to be the same product. So, hmm. And he's a stickler. And, uh, and yeah, I, I remember thinking first, as the towers fell, thinking about the wine that we left for the next class. Kind of dumb in a way because I No, was you're
0: like, thinking like, fuck all that wine we left. Right, right. Yeah.
1: And uh, of course, then the next day it comes to mind, we were hungover from drinking that much of Danielle. I remember what I drank at Danielle's. What would well. you drink? I drank 99 Alan Greo, Um Some Crows? Crows Hermitage. Yeah, maybe. Uh, uh Killer. And it was one of the only wines on the list we could afford. But we had a couple of bottles of it. And then we went for drinks after. Anyway, I got home very late. So the next selfish feeling was like, oh, it's, it's not my tower. Um, so I'll probably still have class. You know, because the first plane that hit, nobody could be really sure. It looked like it might have been a... No, yeah, it's a small or plane. Something. Yeah, just yeah, like a small a prop plane or something. And then when the second one hit, I was like, "Well, I'm definitely not having class now." It was, it's not, it's not funny in any way. But I mean, I remember. Like, no,
0: your like, mind always goes to like trivial matters in those moments. Like the first yeah. thing that crosses your mind is always something silly. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So did they just like cancel class? Like no more classes, or did they relocate to any space? We I immediately
1: re- relocated to the Marriott Marquis, mm. and that was interesting. Um, because then we were at, we were at the Marriott Marquis for, the, for those two classes. Uh, Zraeli took time off. It was uh, really tough. He took a, a, good, a good long time
0: off. Well, especially if you're about to open a new restaurant. You're, or you're oh, about yeah. to open that wine that cellar. That yeah. cellar.
1: Uh, the cellar was unreal. Like, it had racking that nobody else had seen yet. That guy was always just so way ahead of his time. You think about it, it's 2000, it's 20 years ago. But how far we've come in terms of just regular old Joe appreciating wine or knowing anything about wine. Um, it's exponential. Um, and so in that moment, uh, rally for me was like a god to listen to, him to Andrew Bell too. I mean, just a a genius. Uh, you, you, I felt like there was nothing that he couldn't answer in terms of wine. And ironically, he had never passed the MS exam. Mm. And Degorn had told him like, don't even bother. Let's do our own thing. And that's where that came from. Because although Degorn was an MS, he really uh said, hey, we need to find something that fits New York better in terms of education that takes into account every one of these people is working. Hmm. So they were on Mondays and Tuesday nights because those are usually the nights you would, yeah. All the classes were on those days. And how crazy was it that could have been the day before just as easily? I was there till three in the afternoon or two in the afternoon cleaning up. Then when I got out, it was raining like the end of the world and I had a cheap suit on, which I didn't know was cheap, but it was cheap quality. Mm -hmm. And it was like a, a wrinkled mess. By the time I got to Danielle, they asked me to go to the bathroom and since it was still wet and just I had to hold it in front of the air dryers until it was straight enough Wait, for me to be able to get into the restaurant. Really? Oh yeah. That's was, fucking wild. Yeah. Cause I got so soaked coming out. Yeah. I went up to a tasting. I must I, I looked a mess. But I went I went up to a tasting at the Whitney Museum, which is only a few blocks away from Nayo. And the Whitney Museum every year, well, for the course of a couple of years, had done a tasting called Taste Washington. I'm pretty sure that's the name of it. But at that point there were already 150 wine producers from Washington. Mm. Maybe I got that wrong. It might be 120, but it was still a lot of Washington wine producers would come. And I remember tasting every one. That was wine that while. was, was like,
0: like on like the ascent of Washington. Like it was just getting. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just it was ex it was growing exponentially from what might have been like 25 wineries to like 100. Very quick. It happened like from one year to the next. Um, so wines like Coquita Creek and. Uh, um, Andrew Whale and you know, wines that had a little more history. Uh, they were like the benchmarks that this tasting and in between you taste a bunch of great producers that uh that, you know, now are a big deal. And I remember tasting through all the wine and my teeth were red. My teeth yeah. were like black, okay? From the day tasting it luckily it was whites, right? Because it was uh all sauce yeah. It was all sauce and uh, and and Loire. And then this was a lot of red. I drank a lot of Syrah. It was some of my first great um Washington Syrahs I tasted. So I showed up with a wrinkled up suit because then I was too cheap to get a cab, so I said I'll just walk from the Whitney to Danielle, and I got there 45 minutes early. But that gave me the extra. That thing. gave you
0: time to use a little hand dryer. To dry yeah, out, to, to, to dry straight cleaning night, baby,
1: just to look decent. And uh, we got an amazing table. Uh, there was an assistant some at the time named Danielle. I don't remember her last name, but super skilled, uh, and she was in my w set class. Mm. So that's how kind of how I got the reservation uh, short notice and such a great table.
0: Yeah, yeah. Bring a, some grayo. Yeah,
1: can't beat it. Yeah. Bread service. Amazing. <laughs> like, those guys did it right. That was that right. for me as a 26 uh, year old. That was one of the first, like, amazing meals I had had. Really? So I had good food before, but like that level of service, that level of attention, that level of, um, I guess, just pacing. Because yeah. it was like it was meant to be a three hour dinner. It's like this table's yours. I love that. Hmm. Like, I like that kind of dining. Like,
0: well, it's yeah. going away, man. Like, who who's still doing I know. that? Um, well, right now during a pandemic doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. But like even before that, I mean You're right. In Houston at least, like I mean, there's always gonna be that in New York if you want it, right? But in Houston at least, like we had lost almost every single like tasting menu restaurant, right?
1: Yeah, that's a strong point. Yeah.
0: Like true. unless you're doing omakase, there's very few opportunities for that like three hour meal. Right. It's
1: true. There are situations now, pandemic or not, where before they seat you, like you you have an hour and a half. So it's like yeah, you're on you're on the clock. You're on the hook. And I feel like saying Dude, I'm ai th- am a two and a half hour diner and it's going to be worth your while. Don't worry, I promise I'll be better than, mm-hmm. than that next person that comes in at the eight o'clock spot or whatever. Maybe I'm wrong, yeah. but but I feel like, why can't we just, is this negotiable or what? But I think uh, we need more of that. Whereas then you look at like Ziggy from Kenny and Ziggy's. And at the time, this was right before his dad passed away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was like the end of last year. And you go into kenny and ziggy's and he's behind that line almost all the time if, during the pandemic if you went into the front area they were selling cleaning supplies and they would give you the full spray down they were doing crazy to go business because he was so well organized like they had a that's pickup. wild so he you can tell get he, your
0: ribbon sandwich get your lysol get get all your stuff
1: well his if you look at the menu it's like who would try to execute a menu this big there's if you yeah for
0: people that don't know this is a yeah. jewish style delicatessen yeah for listeners at home, you know, you can get all of your classic deli style food, but then there's like 20 bajillion other things. Maybe it's yeah. like a cheesecake factory menu. Pastries,
1: that's. yeah, cakes, um, and, and yeah, cleaning supplies <laughs> during the pandemic. But everything on that menu, when you stop and think, you could easily be like, oh, well, come on, guys, we don't expect to have that same menu during the pandemic. I went to eat there a couple of weeks ago, and it's the same exact menu. No streamlining whatsoever. nothing. Think about the amount of prep. But then you stop and think, what kind of person would be ambitious enough and crazy enough to have this kind of restaurant? That guy Ziggy. He's like, he he fits it perfectly. To own a New York deli, you have to be able to handle it all. And uh, he can tell you the difference between the pickles, and he can tell you how the coleslaw, coleslaw is made. And, Does it and, live
0: up to your New York delicatessens of
1: the past? It's a good question. Um, i wasn't more of an italian deli guy okay mm-hmm. growing up and probably because of where i grew up um but I, you know I, I enjoyed going to the jewish deli um and getting stuff during different times of the year you know like just because everybody else was doing you get blintzes at a certain time of the year and uh i used obviously I, I lived on bagels growing up uh so i i discovered the bialy going to a jewish delicadescent. um but there are much better delis now in new york that have tried to like re, you know, kind of reinvigorate the deli business in its most most authentic form with better ingredients and all this, of course. Um, uh, Russ and Daughters always yeah. gets a lot of attention. Mm-hmm, exactly, and there were some that even opened in Long Island City in Brooklyn, who were th- that were new iterations of people who really wanted to see that deli culture come back.
0: I can't imagine there was much of a deli culture in Anguilla, right?
1: Not at all, no, no.
0: Is that what you missed most, like, about American food when you were down there? Like, you couldn't get your, you know, deli sandwiches? Well,
1: the main, yeah, there was more than that. Because Anguilla, it was like, everything was a challenge. So you really had to want whatever you wanted. I think that's the first thing. I guess it's sort of like similar to, like in jail, I would say, prison. I, I mean You're the it.
0: only person. You should <laughs> never work for their tourism
1: bureau. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean you know, as a lot an, like no, jail. I mean, no, as an expat. If you think about it, uh, the movie um, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah. Remember yeah. Morgan Freeman? He gets you whatever you want yeah. for the right price. He gets you whatever. You want In a will, you get whatever you want, but it's going to cost you something. So you had to have some level of hustle. So I opened up a panini cafe there, which was ahead of its time, without question. Proof is in the fact that I, I I always just broke even. I never really made a profit on it. But there were enough people on the island who loved the sandwiches. And I was doing trying to make the paninis in their purest form, using ingredients. Uh, you got
0: a panini press? You were able to get that down there? I, had a fanta-
1: I bought it all from here in the States. Everything took long to get there. Uh, some of it actually, I, I lie, some of the equipment I bought from St. Martin from the Dutch side, uh, which actually has a really uh, a fantastic restaurant culture.
0: Very vibrant panini community on that <laughs> no,
1: side. No, no, <laughs> not at all. And I mean, there really wasn't much of it in the States either. Yeah. But to me, I was like, this is the best kind of, of a snack to have on this island. Because people have these really amazing breakfasts. Um, and then in the middle of the day, it's almost what like... What are
0: we talking, like, eggs and beans? Like, what do we... Well, if
1: you want to go traditional, you go to one of the local restaurants. And you'll have, like, Johnny Cakes and have a whole mess of things that are very heavy in your stomach. Um, or, if you're staying at a hotel, which is most folks who are in Anguilla, they're going to have some kind of... A continental breakfast into European breakfast So pastries, you know I would call it French But uh, very European And you'd fill up on a lot of butter and coffee And, and fresh juices and this kind of thing yeah. um, So we provided that as well Being a panini cafe We had we didn't have full out breakfast But we were open early enough because coffee was one of our things And I remember it was also definitely Ahead of its time because I was really into coffee And coffee at that point There were some amazing Um uh, roast uh, coffee roasters in New York that had their own um, just espresso bars. Mm-hmm. And that was a big thing. I, I know it was a bigger thing. In, it was a big thing in Seattle before Starbucks opened, and in New York it got there fairly quickly. And coffee culture became a, a real thing, like in middle '90s probably. And there were places that you'd stop for an espresso, and there were places you stop for a cortado, and there were places you stop for uh, just black coffee. Yeah. Um, and at that time, I remember trying Donessi coffee, which is kind of commercial. Yeah. But I remember meeting the guy who ran Donessi for New York. That's wild. And I told him I said, if I ever opened a place overseas, because I love their logo and their cups. You remember, like, it was like that. We used deep.
0: it at Houston's, for Houston's restaurant, Hillstone across the country. Perfect. Yeah. For like up until like maybe 2014 or 15, all
1: stores used Donessi. Amazing. Like, for the entire company's history, that's all they used. That's, well, first of all, I, I love Hillstone Group in Houston's. I think. They're all they're all about quality like in quality control It's one of the best places to ever work if you want to train and then move on Um, They were kind of the benchmark that came to town in New York um, in terms of restaurants that dealt with volume every one of the Folks who owned multiple restaurants or one restaurant that was based on volume like Rothman Steakhouse was we moved a lot of people In and out of there. I also worked at a place called River Bay before that um, into my late teens uh that restaurant the owners you would easily say those were some of the best operators in the restaurant business. they went to houston's interviewed the people running houston's asked them some questions and they came back and they're like you guys thought we were hard listen to what they do at houston's and so they turned up the, they turned up the temperature on us to make things even more challenging they would check our shirts for a oh, crease
0: yeah. all that shit
1: they wanted to see if you had stains on your shoes um all of it your fingernails uh, so lineup was very intense. Yeah,
0: nail check at lineup, baby. That was yeah. That was Houston's restaurant for sure.
1: And there's not enough restaurants that do that even now, and they've been around for that. Houston's opened up 25 years ago now. It's, it's not even there anymore. But um,
0: they still have two locations in the city: the Midtown and Park Ave location. Okay, they don't, they don't
1: have East, Hampt- East Hampton. anymore? Oh, they
0: still have the East Hampton okay. Grill. Yeah, they have that, and then they have one in Bergen County. Used to be Hackensack, but they've relabeled it as okay. Bergen County.
1: Um, no, this one was this one was in. Uh, Roosevelt Field Mall in, oh, okay. in like Cold Place. They so used to be like
0: order. all about the malls because their first location in Atlanta was the Lenox Mall. And then they had a bunch in like Century City Mall. They had a Gulf Stream, which is a seafood concept, and also just a Houston's or Hillstone there as well. Yeah. Um,
1: but yeah. And that's why I have a lot of respect for those guys because folks that have worked there and even know the history really well. Yeah. It's something to be proud of. It's a story to talk about. And some people tell me, I, think- I don't think Houston's that good. And I'm like, no, you're wrong.
0: I think the the person who best described it was Andrew Knowlton, who described it as the Ralph Lauren of, like, restaurants. You can go there and get, like, any number of things. It's a legacy brand. They're not reinventing the wheel. They're not wilding out, doing anything crazy. But, like, you want really good spinach dip? You can get it there. You want, you know, Allen Brothers USDA Prime Filet? You can get that there. You want to get a ribeye that's been marinated in pineapple juice and soy sauce, a Hawaiian ribeye? You can get that. You want to get sushi? Some of our restaurants do sushi. Like it's just really well-made food. Yeah. Got hot fudge sundae, it's blue bell vanilla ice cream, house-made hot fudge,
1: and whipped cream that's whipped to order. Like that's all you need. So good. Yeah. When I think about Houston's, I, I, I always think that would be, and, and I know they've run into issues because they've had to rename some of their restaurants, but that to me is a brand that you've put it anywhere in the world it'll hit it, and it'll, and it, it'll always be working like inside. You see everybody working like a clock. Everybody looks sharp. Everybody looks there on top of it. You know,
0: what's wild is we had some regulars who would come into the Houston's on Westheimer. And they said that in Buenos Aires, there is a Houston's restaurant, like legit, like called Houston's with like all the same dishes. Like they just liked it so much. They were like, we can recreate a version of this. It won't, probably won't be as good, but like, We'll fucking put it in another country and it'll do its thing. Yeah, that's I didn't know yeah, that. That that fucking happened. That's which amazing. is good for them. And apparently, same thing in Canada. Some some yeah. people just like went off and did it up there and called so, it Houston's as well. Yeah. Maybe this is you doing in Anguilla. You know, <laughs> go a, back go back down there. Open a Houston's. Yeah, you don't need that panini restaurant. That's anymore. what I should
1: have been doing. The panini. Listen, the panini place had the was Essie the panini coffee.
0: place like a side hustle, like on top of what you were doing yeah. elsewhere. You were just yeah. like. I need a place where I can get my own paninis, yeah, my yeah, own yeah. coffee. I, I was, was opening myself. Yeah, I was dating <laughs> a
1: girl at the time, and I was trying to get her to move down. Mm-hmm. And she was, uh, you know, pretty ambitious and um, was looking to do design. And, and I was like, finally, I was like, "Why don't you come down and run this business?" But I think it, she learned a lot from it. I certainly did. It was super challenging running a business on an island in the middle of nowhere, where everything is like taxed, you know, tariffed heavily and taxed. Heavily coming in.
0: Is it just like a flat tax, like a certain All amount, different. like dollar amount? On so it, random. No.
1: Yeah, like a certain kind of ham would be like fifty percent. You know, that's why. And so you would have to relabel stuff, like anything you can get get away with. So I would go over to the Dutch side of Saint Martin, which was like a twenty five minute ferry ride, mm-hmm. and come back, and I would have like cheese smuggled in my pants. You know, <laughs> like a like a like a long log of cheese like smuggled yeah. in my pants. Or or, you, or I would you relabel looped, stuff to you make it look cheap. Well, no, I paid for it, right? But I didn't want to have to but, pay the tariff on but it. But did you hoop it? What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. Nature's pocket. Oh no, <laughs> I didn't even know that no. term. Yeah, that have to be. us. <gasps> I, I don't think I can handle that. No, no. It's like no. imagine a whole wheel of cheese. It's like, how'd you get this? How'd you get oh. this wheel of cheese in here? <laughs> you don't. You don't want to know. Just enjoy oh. it. Oh my God, you're gonna cut that out, aren't you? <laughs> <I'm> Leaving that <laughs> in, baby. You, you better not. The um. The, anyway, we tried to bring in stuff, and everything was such a challenge because, again, like they would sometimes just say, "Oh, that's a hundred percent," but it would be something random, something that they didn't know. Like if you try to be uppity with them at 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 uh, customs, let's say you come over and you you have some tool or piece of machinery that they're not familiar with, that's like default one hundred percent. If you don't try yeah. to play that sh- play that down, you're gonna get taxed for it for trying to be too smart. Really? <laughs> yeah. So. so you're just
0: like, "Oh, it's a it's a."
1: Like imagine it's a, you,
0: microwave. No, it's like just
1: a, a microwave. <laughs> no, like a microwave. If you come, let's like, say you have a circulator, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a circulator, I'm I'm now gonna sous vide at home or whatever yeah. in my restaurant. And you show up and uh, you say, Yeah, you know, it's a circulator. Well, what do you mean it's a circulator? What do you use it for? Well, come on, man, you know, it's like for, for, for 100%. You're getting hit hundred percent. So how do you just be being a wise? The way you get around, it, it's like it's a blender. It's a hand blender. <laughs> That's what, you just make it up. <laughs> or you can you can, whatever shape like that. It's a it's a wand. I don't know. Make it up <laughs> whatever shape like that. Yeah. You make it up, and they'd be like, okay, okay, we actually have that in in on our, our list. Yeah. On our list, it's fifteen percent. Whatever. Everything electronic, which is crazy because nothing on the island is being made uh, in terms yeah. of electrics, right, or electronics or technology. But everything you brought over was getting taxed heavily, and that's to protect the cell phone store on the island and the, you know the 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 music store on the island. You know, that sells. Um, amplifiers and things like that like all that stuff was tax-high because yeah. they brought it in paid the tariff And that's why the prices were that expensive But the thing about it was is like yes, you can get everything But if you want Tropicana orange juice be ready to pay nine dollars for a half gallon that's as wild. opposed to I Guess it's like close to six now, but 15 years ago You could still get Tropicana for three bucks and over there it was like 910 depending on where you went
0: Where would you get your bread?
1: You, if you wanted fresh bread, you, there were bakeries. Okay. Uh, and actually, there was a bakery on, in Island Harbor, which was all the way on the other side that was owned by a Frenchman. And there were a lot of expats that were European, who were European and would open their businesses based on what they knew. And there was a Frenchman that owned a bakery in Island Harbor, and I would have him par off these rolls that were light as air and not cook them fully because they get finished in the panini. Um, so they, were, they almost looked like bleached rolls. But yeah. that but the the yeast, I don't know, whatever you used, made them so light. It it yeah. didn't it, it felt like it weighed like a, a large marble or something. As well. And then you cooked the panini, it would crisp up so thin it would be like a thin crust pizza. Hmm. So the panini was it was never stacked heavy. That's a key on panini, the cheese cheese important. But I was using like cheese, I was buying wheels of Gruyere from the Dutch shop of St. Martin because there was a a KLM flight that would come in every Thursday that was just gourmet goods and it would be all the restaurants would order, and on this one t- t- uh, KLM flight would be packed. And this guy, That's Fifi, wild. who would sell me the European stuff during Valencia orange season, I had Valencia oranges. When I That's wanted wild. 12 month Pata Negra uh, ham, I would get it. So Fifi's i get everything. Plug. Fifi, Fifi is the plug. If, he, if he's still around, uh, he's in St. Martin. And he is the answer to all gourmet things in the Was way. there
0: anything that you couldn't get, though? Like, one thing that was your white whale, like fucking white anchovies or... No, got was- white
1: anchovies. Yeah. Always. Spanish white anchovies.
0: Was there some, hmm. some item that, like, just never, for whatever reason,
1: you were able to get? Was that, able or not? Was not able to get. Seafood was hard, in yeah. general. Well, because you could eat local seafood, right? So the thing there was to eat crayfish, which is essentially... Uh, a lobster, spineless lobster. So it's like Mediterranean yeah, yeah. lobster, but they tend to be on the smaller, almost langoustine side. Mm. That's flavor-wise, okay? But the, but the way to explain it is it's the best-tasting lobster you ever have. So when you're on the island, you're, you're eating crayfish. So yeah. that's what's caught, you know, that's what, what's in the waters locally. That's what you're going to get. Trigger fish, things like this. So you ate what was local. If you wanted something from the outside, you're going to pay a pretty penny. So So like
0: tuna, like was that something that was no you can get that yeah because we had the Atlantic we we had
1: Atlantic side of the island and people would fish out tuna. Uh, So we had some places that did sushi on the island and did did it fairly well, except they were using different things for it. But if you wanted to get something like how we'll get something shipped on ice in Vegas or New York, let's say you wanted to get abalone from Chile, yeah, if you wanted to get that, that was going to cost you a ton of money. Because I can't even imagine what the transaction would look like if you were trying to bring it through custom. <laughs> They'd be like, why are you trying to bring yeah. these, you know, because yeah. they have conch on the island. Yeah. So that's also like a connector muscle. It's also like a, a mm-hmm. mollusk. Um, and so you're bringing abalone. It looks like this huge collector, uh, connector muscle. And before you trim it down, sometimes it looks dark on the outside. So they would know that yeah. it's like conch. Yeah, well, they, might, they might think it's conch. Yeah. So you're better off saying like, oh, I'm just bringing this conch. To them, it would make no sense. Like, you get conch on the island. Yeah. But you just say it's some exotic conch. <laughs> I don't know.
0: So, <laughs> oh, baby. So yeah, I imagine that extended to wine too, right? I mean, we're talking about these things that you can't get or yeah. that are hard to find. I mean, was it a KLM flight where you would just like smuggle in a couple bottles of like Rica, Or like, what's the vibe?
1: It's, it's so Wild west it's hard to explain how wild west it was because you're basically working three weeks out, minimum, okay? Like if you have an idea for one, now don't get me wrong, there's distributor, there's one distributor on the island, uh, Grand Van de France, mm-hmm. and there's tropical Distributors, which is like the more commercial. Like they also do Coca-Cola and you know bottled water. So those were the two on the island, but the rest were either connected to another island, like Martinique or St. Martin, and then they would have a representative on the island. The reason I explain all this is because as long as you were getting it through them, you were looking at final price. You didn't have to deal with anything. It was going to be the price that's set on paper, and they were clearing it for you, delivering it to you. Amazing. Keep in mind, this is like 12,000 people on the island at this time. Yeah, one road down the middle of the island. One, uh, one uh, traffic light. One traffic light in the entire island, hmm. which is in the in the valley. And uh, you could basically get around any time of day without traffic, without trouble. So that was convenient. So for deliveries and whatnot, you can, you can call for a hot shot and you can get your, <laughs> because for the most part, it's, it would be never less than 20 minute delivery.
0: But, but I can't imagine they had too, too much on hand, did they?
1: No, uh, but the larger distributors knew what moved and the understanding of how those guys ran inventories is kind of uh, amazing. Like I would put them up against anybody who's a programmer for a distributor here in, in the US, uh, even if you're out somewhere remote. Um, And you're very good at keeping the right inventory for your clientele and for the folks in Mm -hmm. in your town over there These guys had to be so far out in front because like I said if you have an idea and it's coming from overseas It's a three-week turnaround that's at best to get it over on a reefer get it over on time They get it cleared through customs not have it sit outside on the dock over the weekend where it'll cook because there's almost zero There was almost zero respect for wine unless you were willing to pay somebody who's over at Customs, who was in yeah. receiving to get that put brought that pallet at least under cover. Not even in AC, under cover. So your job was to get that cleared as quickly as possible. And that's what the challenges those distributors went through. But because you were also allowed to buy direct, which is completely mind blowing, but it's almost like go for it. It's like the cha- it's their dare. Go for it. Good luck doing it. Because what you had to do is consolidate um, Containers overseas, so you were almost your own importer. Yeah,
0: you're self-importing.
1: You're self-importing. And so the logistics behind that, keep in mind that your purchasing department within the hotel that I worked was huge. The warehouse was huge. So they were able to fit boats in there if you needed. Uh, But they were always buying equipment because all of the activities and foods and all this stuff. So we had huge walk-ins or whatever. So we were well-equipped, and we usually used containers with ACs, with split-unit ACs or window ACs. Uh, cooling it down. They were containers that had been used to bring in the you know the the beach furniture or the catamarans, whatever, and we would fill those with wine and rack them out into like uh, bins boxes uh, and so do an inventory in those containers sometimes with rats uh, rolling in there coming in and out of there, or vermin that would make a hole and the, and then come in and 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 break a couple of bottles of wine and then eat through the corks, all really? kinds of yeah, ridiculous things would happen. Uh, in one inventory to the next, and you didn't know what you' gonna find when you grabbing wines in this freezing cold container. But you figured out a way, and we were one of the only restaurants that kept the back stock. The only other competitor we had probably on the island who had an inventory like we did. And I was at Cap Luca at the time. Uh, was Malihana, which was across uh, across the way on the other on the northern bay, um, and they had a really great European program, whereas ours was a little more international, but we had more New World wine how many people though like when they go to these caribbean resorts are drinking
0: you know the kinds of wines that maybe you and i would seek out when we go to like a nice restaurant you know versus just like they want to have like some cheap rosé to drink by the pool it's a great question like you 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 are a man of integrity you want to bring in cool wine that's exciting and dynamic versus like people that are just using the wine program as almost a commodity you know a commoditized wine program
1: yeah 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 it, it's a mixture of both because you have to keep in mind that these local distributors, to keep them afloat, they need to sell enough Coca-Cola and Mandavi and whatever. And, and, yeah. they, and there's good quality product there. You want to keep some familiar stuff on there yeah. because you have folks of wealth. L- let, me, let me backtrack a bit. Most of the resorts on the island, uh, the average you know, nightly uh, hotel cost is over 500 bucks, even back then. So we're talking about elite um you couldn't land jet planes there but you could land um private planes prop planes um so you had a lot of folks that would fly in from puerto rico or um and you know matter i I would fly i would fly to puerto rico sometimes directly on a prop plane there or on a large plane on a jet plane to uh, juliana airport in saint martin and then ferry over and the resort had two speedboats, so i i was known to head over it was like an eight minute speedboat drive with the captains we had Hmm. to go buy cuban cigars and come back before the people would even show up to the bar to, to ask for Cuban cigars if we, yeah. if we were in a pinch So I knew how to improvise everything and I knew people on both islands I knew people in customs and when it came to the cigars that we just snuck them and put them in an ice-cooler Whatever and then came back if they ever tried to get on and check to we had we just made it seem like the cigars Were something that we kept on board, but yeah, everything yeah. was a, yeah. a hustle so and being from New York that came in handy because That part was the difference between us having the right wines uh, and us just l- being lazy and just doing the ones that were distributed on island. So it was a mixture, and more importantly, because our clientele was very European, there were a lot of people that would come and challenge you with things that would you would have never been challenged with, even in U in the U S at that time. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a perfect example: Robert Frost. You know Robert Frost from like Frost Nixon and yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. He was good friends with Ali. So um, amazing uh, uh, journalist, uh, good interviewer, and 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 uh, and. Knew his way around sports and everything else. He came every Christmas. So in the four years I was at Cap Chaluka, I was with him and his three sons and his wife um, every Christmas. And they didn't come for a week; they came for like two and a half. It was like yeah. their spot. We're going to get take care of. They knew they knew everybody who worked there. They knew servers that he knew servers there for the past twenty years. And so that was part of their tradition. And the three sons would go wild and go hang out. And they knew people on the island. Anyway, it was fun. But every night, my only challenge uh, was every night of the week he wanted to start with a different Merceau. So my challenge in the off season leading up to Christmas was always making sure I had enough Merceau for the Frost table. There you go. Yeah, which was the table of five and that for me was where I first had a taste of Albert Grievo and the first time I had had the and a lot of the first happened there only because there were a lot of importers in St. Martin and Martinique that had a good grasp on French wines that hadn't even come to the States yet. So some Mm. of my first tastes of some French wines that are now a big deal here were in anguilla where mm. they were you know um customary for people to drink them when i went down there was a craze in st martin uh this was 03 where everybody drank domain not out of large format mm. that was like you know hey you're the jet set if you're at nikki beach over in st martin on, at orient beach uh in st martin or if you were at, at nikki beach in uh in um one of the other expensive islands or whatever, if you were on those islands, you were drinking a three liter of Domaine rose, uh, and they were in special buckets that were made for three liter or, or magnets really? and everybody around you, you didn't ask questions, people just walked up with a cup. It could be a stranger. You'd be on the nude beach in Orient Beach and it could be somebody who rolls up, has the little cup that looks like it, and comes get a refill, like a keg party almost. That's but wild. the rich dudes wouldn't even track it, because 'cause they'd be like they'd tell the waiter, just keep have the keep, bringing keep the these, three liters yeah. coming. Keep the three liters coming. So the amount of not we would sell, it was, bad. it was like a phenomenon. Another one that comes to mind was um, Chateau Veneer. It's from Bandol. V-A-N-N-I-E-R-E-S.
0: Had never heard of it before. I, I guess, you know, people will drink red wine under any circumstance. We know that in Houston. Like yeah. It'll be like summertime in Houston, 100 degrees. People want to drink like big Napa Cab. But I would think like the wines that would be so great down there with this like crayfish, with like... All the fresh seafood, warm, sunny climate. Like I'm looking for Loire, I'm looking for, you know, yeah. you know, some really racy white wine, champagne. I mean, was that much of a thing?
1: Yeah, champagne was big. Um, and because a lot of people were there celebrate. So yeah. champagne was big. We had a wine cellar that was gla- glass enclosed, and we would have people that sometimes would book eating in the wine cellar with myself, the 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 Maitre D would do all the service for it because we had a hostess and the chef would come in periodically mm. to talk about the food. And that was all done on the spot. We didn't have a set menu. It was like, they would come and tell us because we, we didn't want to show them the same menu every night. So we'd have somebody like Bob Costas or Phil Mickelson and say, those were two guys that come to mind because all five days they wanted to eat in the, in the wine room. Yeah. And they told us beforehand, like Phil Mickelson's like, I like domestic Pinot, but I'm open to Pinot from all around the world. So I'm having him drink like New Zealand Pinot for the first time in his life. And... Chef Reed is doing crayfish cocktail and conch soup. So it was things that he had never had Conch before.
0: soup and escarpment, baby, let's That's do it. Exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. So that was the adventure part of it that really set the experience apart. We got to take care of some amazing people. But the real thing about it was when people came, they let themselves be in your hands, regardless of who you were. The guy who drove the boat, the guy who did the, you know, the, the, all the beach activities. Yeah. You trusted him. You trusted... Once you're on the island, you kind of put yourself in, in the hands of ingredients and in the hands of the experts that they had in these places because as an expat, I was able to stay as an expert in wine, but I had to move it along. I had to have an apprentice every year named in order to be able to refresh. Now, the apprentice would have to show progress as well. Yeah. So that was fun. So one of my apprentices was Jardel Lake, whose father was the big wine director, yeah. Albert Lake at Malayhana, who was like a legend on the island. It didn't matter what you said; it was just one of those deals. It's like, oh, that's pretty good, but it's not as good as what Albert does. (laughs) You know, like that national (laughs) pride. Didn't matter what I did; it would be like, oh, that that sounds really great, but yeah, Albert probably did that five years ago. Did you Did you ever feel like you were fully embedded within the community? One hundred percent. Yeah, one hundred percent. I drove a scooter for a while. Then once I opened the business, I had to go through all the same gripes and challenges because there's a lot of business owners on the island. Everybody has some kind of a business. It doesn't matter who you meet. You'll meet them and be like, oh, I cut hair on the side. Or whatever. everybody has like a thousand It's like prison. Like. Everyone's
0: got that little side <laughs> yeah. hustle, baby.
1: You need to have a, a side hustle. And you should be good at something that nobody else is good at. And so yeah. you see a lot of, a lot of that. Because once one person does it well, so everybody's going to learn from that person. So you go yeah. back. That guy's the original. Like the guy I told you I would buy the bread from. And everybody would drive to Island Harbor, Harbor for his croissants. And I dealt with this guy. Sometimes he wouldn't get my delivery till afternoon. And I think about that, like, in this day and age, like, the day's over. Yeah. So the way I would have to do it is I would keep some in a light freeze, right? Not fully frozen, but in a light freeze, I need to be able to take them out and then be able to defrost naturally on the counter until I was ready to use them for that day. Uh, but I knew we would always be late. So rather than fight with them, I would have to just order a ton extra. You're on island time, baby. I'm on island time, and he is on the other side of the island. <laughs> so I'm fucked. I'm shit out of luck.
0: Yeah baby so once you came back to houston to work at the tasting room yeah. like what aspect
1: of the island did you miss the most the paninis <laughs> no i actually i could i probably could recreate that panini now but at the time you ever make a conch panini never no? huh, that would have been way ahead of its time see there we i go. should have done that i should have used more of their ingredients than bringing all these european ingredients um but that would have played i had a rum bar at night there as well i yeah. tried it all I had a basil uh, garden, and I had a rooftop, which I was going to turn into like a night movie place. Ooh, I like that. Which probably would have worked, given with the pandemic, would have worked great. I had a flat, like, it was a perfectly flat rooftop that you could walk up easily. Anybody could walk up these stairs. The stairs were right on the front of the building. Anyway, um, the, what was the, where were we? (laughs) Sorry.
0: What did you miss about uh, Uh, island time once you came back to the States?
1: The silence? The silence? And I mean that in, in, in the real sense. On a Sunday, which was my only day off on most weeks, uh, and some I worked seven, but some I worked five, but mostly six. I was off on Sundays, and Sunday felt like a week off because I could go to the beach, hang out. Everybody got up early on the island. Um, so you'd have your breakfast at the bar somewhere. You'd already have your first drink by 10. By 1 in the afternoon, you're bored of the beach, like get the hell out of here. Like You leave the beach, ride back to the house, take a nap, i'd wake up like two o'clock exhausted and be like oh it's got to be like eight or something yeah. it was just two in the afternoon so there's more things to do yeah smoke a cuban cigar go see one of the distributors where are they because they're usually working on the weekend too yeah Every, one thing glides into the next what i missed most was the pace of a day off because it lasted it felt like a week you were dying to go back to work by the end of the night really. i'd make myself go to sleep at 9 30 at night with the idea of tomorrow's monday I'm going, I'm going to be at work at 6 a.m. Yeah. And I had to be at the Panini Cafe at 7 every day anyway. So it wasn't that big, big of a yeah. stretch, but I loved being at Cap Chaluka at 6 a.m. Before most people got there, as the breakfast crew was getting there and watch the sun and sit out there. And sometimes the, some of the folks that worked in the kitchen would be line fishing for like yeah. little crappy fish that they would cook for themselves during right. family meal because they didn't want to eat the family meal every day. It, it was just... Amazing. Like I, I always, I lived in a place called Swing High. The whole four years I was there, Swing High is one of the highest parts on the island. It's a very flat island, but from there I can see in every direction. And down the block for me was Pirate Rum facility. All right. Uh, you know P Y P Y R A T Pirate Rum. Yeah. Um, and the rum was excellent. I mean, like most of the better hotels would give you a little skinny uh, on your pillow, you know, every night or whatever, like for. I don't know, to taste in the morning. You don't food, need baby. a
0: chocolate mint on the pillow, baby. You, you need a little, little bit, bit of, of rum. A
1: little bit of egg rum. But that was right down the block from me. So there was a lot of tourism that would roll around mm-hmm. there. In fact, good friends opened a restaurant right near, above uh, that area that was like in a plantation home. Uh, that's still one of the best restaurants called Vea. Mm-hmm. And to this day, that was the very beginning of me knowing that a big part of what my career needed to be would be doing like uh, either... Vocational, vocational advice, or let me help you find a place or connect you with the right people. Mm-hmm. That's where my New York sensibility came in, but also my want to connect with people when I first meet them in this business in a memorable way so that later on it could be so much easier for me to collaborate with them or work with them if, if, if it came to it. But I imagine
0: like taking care of so many people in a resort setting sets you up well for working at a country club. Right yeah because the mentality of someone going to a country club there's that same kind of like not quite ownership but like sense of residence that someone feels when they go to a country club, like it feels like an extension of their home much in the way when you go to a resort, especially if it's a resort you've been going to for many years, like you feel that 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 sense of ownership, you feel that sense of home
1: and lots of people once they are, let's say they get into that uh range of wealth where they can kind of dictate what they do at all at any given moment and probably take their private plane wherever they want as well they are definitely creatures of habit uh, almost to a fault to where like the same routine happens every year they summer in the same places for the same weeks and super predictable if anybody wanted to take them out they'd be easy to track because yeah. their years live exactly the same and so Anguilla, willow capture luca was just part of it and i would say the same in other comparable resorts like cuisinart and malihana However, we had some famous folks like Robert Frost, and we had uh, uh, some actors and, and whatnot who would come every year for Christmas and spend a good time with them. The beauty of it was is I would take notes, mental notes and written notes on what worked the previous year, and I would try to build on that experience for the following year. So I was ready for them when they showed up. It was exciting. It was like a reunion. Um, and that's what made that resort so fun in terms of the cyclical nature is even the People that were tough that I didn't want to see, I'd have to mentally prepare. But I knew they were coming. Yeah. And then fast forward to the country club. Now all of a sudden I have that situation on like hyperspeed, hyper frequency, because you have people that you see sometimes three times in a day and more. How people coming settings. in three times a day? There's people that would spend the whole entire day there at, at the country club, and mm. that's something that was very foreign to me. I'd never been a member yeah, of I, country club. Yeah. So that's not it. Wasn't my world, but to see it. At a certain age, for example, some men after retirement like to be hanging out, talking about sports, and so they spend time in the locker room, and the locker room has nice seating and a bar and the whole bit, uh, so in a country club setting, you can really get everything you need there. You can play, go play a round of golf and hang mm-hmm. out and have some drinks and watch the game, and then go have dinner with your family. So th- there are some folks that would park their day in the morning and That's leave at night, <laughs> or <That's> not. <laughs> so... That's different than Capsuluka, but also at Capsuluka, you would see people multiple times in a day as well. So to be able to show them a different face, because the hours were crazy, you'd see them in the night buffet or whatever. Mm-hmm. After being on the beach all day, they're exhausted. You knew not to overserve them. So you take care of them as well. It wasn't always about the hard sale. You wanted them to survive until the next day.
0: Because yeah. people
1: all of a sudden who take drink for sport at home on a day off, when they're on vacation, they really go hard. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they'll have a hangover in the middle of the day and recover mm-hmm. from it and start all over again at night. Uh and having to deal with folks' safety in a in a way was very comf- comfortable in a resort because you know they they wouldn't leave off property so you knew at the very least as long as they don't try to swim <laughs> uh you know they they wouldn't die uh, yeah. or or hurt themselves but you know plenty of scooter accidents silly things like that and folks acting stupid or ju- ju- trying to jump off a boat or anything like that. But that was the extent of anything bad happening. And it was like, Probably it was same on the
0: thing at a country club, though, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Safety came first in a country club, certainly because of the average age. But no shark attacks down there. No, yeah. no, no. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of that in Anguilla either. Like uh, most, had yeah, the Caribbean uh, Sea on one side and the Atlantic on the other. And they were different temperatures and they even looked different colors. Hmm. Uh, and the temperature was the main thing. Um, in terms of you went fishing on one side, mostly on the Atlantic side, um, and then on the other side was more for having a good time and, sw- and snorkeling and that kind of thing. Yeah. But ultimately, you could do both on either side yeah. as well. Um, and we had 33 beaches on the island that were all public. There was no, no such thing as private. Even the nude beach? Uh, well, there was no nude beach in Anguilla, but there was in uh, St. Martin. Mm. Yeah, we were, Anguilla is very conservative. No marina, so you didn't have any cruise ships. You didn't, you didn't hmm. have any of the big yachts all you could do was if you had a big uh if you had a big sailboat you could moor there you had to pay uh to moor in two different bays that you were yeah. allowed to uh you had to come in, in your own private plane or prop plane get dropped off or you flew into the large airport in St. Martin and you came over on a ferry or on a boat uh um on a private uh yeah. boat cuz we had yeah, a like the speed speedboats you guys had we would go pick them up yeah, yeah. so and and the two Guys that ran the captains of the boat were bigger personalities than anybody, so they were the ones that would tee up these folks. Oh, yeah. they would have them so relaxed and feel easy, feeling easy that the check in was like by the time the check in was over, people would be falling asleep from the jet lag and they'd be falling asleep in the, in the lobby. <laughs> but in the meanwhile, we had butlers putting away their clothes and in you know, like hanging up their stuff and yeah. ironing their stuff and getting their room ready. That's so super it was like, cool. Yeah, no keys on the doors, no TVs anywhere uh, on the resort except at the bar, hmm. not in the rooms. Uh, so it was about like you know, go hang out on the beach. That's awesome. You know? That's cool. And, and that's what that that's what that island really is great for. It's just relax time, read a book. Uh, and be around other people that come in December. December was a big deal because it was all the same people. So they look looking around the room and just like a country club, everybody's sitting in the main dining room and they're all looking. It's like, oh, look, Kevin's back or This guy's back. And I even had, this is, I will name drop this person. We had Nancy Silverton from La Brea Bakery and we would be able to attract really great chef town and really great Psalmtown and winery uh, folks like principals because we would do our... Gastronomic celebration series It was part of a package You pay To go stay Capsule for Seven days And like Two of those days Would be a weekend Where we would Do a wine dinner On the Friday And the Saturday Or was Saturday Sunday Whatever it was It was two wine dinners With the same winery mm-hmm. Different menus and you, and you could go to both If you wanted We, hmm. we made both of them Different enough Yeah We had the most amazing People come down We had Nancy Silverton Come down And she came to my Panini cafe Hell yeah She loved it Because you know She did sandwich Thursdays At her place mm-hmm. Um you know, she had restaurants as well. And the sandwich Thursday was huge because there was a gourmet sandwich. There was only one that they would make. And you would come in and it didn't matter whatever it was, you, you tried that sandwich. Hell yeah. I never lived in L.A. She, I, I read it through her books and yeah. her explaining it in front of the capsule, I guess. But the day after the first wine dinner, the next day she came to my opinion cafe and tried a little bit of all of them. And gave me great critique because I was using really great ingredients. And my, my trademark like um, signature sandwich was... Uh, yeah, what's the cv special the cv and this this one? I can't remember what I called it I want to say I called it the fondue panini, but it wasn't that simple It had a better name than that, but it was rosette de leon, which is a salami you'll get from leon um And you can slice it super thin we do it on a slicer rather than by hand because we wanted paper thin and Mm -hmm. we did a a raclette cheese with it Uh, so we'd lay raclette in there. Of course it would melt Melt, beautifully in the panini and it had sliced cornichons. So I actually had a cornichon slicer. So I would take good quality cornichons and slice them down and make them into slivers. Mm-hmm. Spread those slivers out. And the last part were pink lady apples. And Ooh. I would slice those on the slicer as well. Yeah. And then cut thin slivers. Could you get those? Slivers. Like, yeah, i get those as well from Fifi. Fifi, so I, our boy. I, yeah, pink lady apples are grown in different places. But these were almost like champagne. Yeah. So basically it was fondue in a sandwich. So in that sandwich yeah. on the bottom was the reclette, Thin Layer, Rosette de Leon. The sliced cornichons that would melt into the cheese, and the uh, Pink Lady apples for crispness that I would add after the fact. After the panini was pressed, I would never do it. stick them in nice and cold and fresh and they'd warm up, but they yeah. still have a lot of crunch. You'd bite into it, it was like a fondue panini. That sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. And Nancy Silverton said it was a it was a fantastic idea. She asked me what how I thought of it, and I said simple. I thought of different cuisines that use cheese as their main ingredient, and the combinations that worked. I figured out how I could engineer that into a panini.
0: Do you ever check to see if she stole that sandwich idea from you?
1: No. And I hope she did. Because uh, honestly, none of it was I felt like, oh, this can't be redone somewhere else. I almost wanted, I, I invited yeah. people to. There were a couple that would come from Georgia every Christmas for like two of the four years, the last two. And they said they had a bee farm and that he was like a finance guy. They had lived in New York. We're gonna try to, you know, lean into this bee farm thing. And um and like on an apiary? Pro- like a like like bees, honeybees. yeah, yeah, making honey, yeah. So they're yeah. making honey, and 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 they, they had a, a huge honeybee farm on their property in Georgia. And they said they wanted to open a concession, like a, a little restaurant that ordered food. So he straight up asked me, Can you send me your whole um, menu and product list for Jokahu? That was the name of the cafe. And I said it to him, I didn't even second guess it. I was like, I'd be honored, yeah, if you reopened that. And it was successful, seeing that mine, mine was open yeah. almost two years seeing that mine never really hit it, it was sustainable enough to keep everybody busy. Yeah. But I'd love to have a lot of... And busy. it brought the lady down with you, right? Yeah, which was a great... I got a roll. Oh, you got a scoot. We're gonna All have right to baby. part two this. Part two this, but baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Cool. We, we, we barely got to, got to take Willa. We, we, we made it there. We made it there. Yeah. All right.
0: As you can tell, Christian is full of great stories, um, and we're going to keep digging into them. So uh, next week, we're going to drop part two with Christian coming back to the States, working at the country club, and then pivoting into distribution. So uh, lots of fun stuff. Really looking forward to getting into it with him. And you can subscribe to Buy the Glass wherever you stream your audio content, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, all that good stuff. Uh, And we will see you next week with part two.